Book Ten, Part One of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shalifa Malchem. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Nasser. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Ten, Part One. Veiled in a saffron mantle. Through the air unmeasured, after the strange wedding, Hymen departed swiftly for Ciconian land, regardless, and not listening to the voice of tuneful Orpheus. Truly, Hymen there was present during the festivities of Orpheus and Eurydice, but gave no happy omen, neither hallowed words nor joyful glances, and the torch he held would only sputter, fill the eyes with a smoke, and caused no blaze while waving. The result of that sad wedding proved more terrible than such foreboding fates. While through the grass delighted Naiads wandered with the bride, a serpent struck its venomed tooth in a soft ankle, and she died. After the bard of Rhodope had mourned, and filled the highs of heaven with the moans of his lament, Determined also the dark underworld should recognize the misery of death, he dared descend by the Tenarian gate down to the gloomy sticks, and there passed through pale glimmering phantoms, and the ghosts escaped from sepulchres until he found Persephone and Pluto, master king of shadowed realms below, and then began to strike his tuneful lyre, to which he sang. O deities of this dark world beneath the earth, this shadowy underworld to which all mortals must descend, if it can be called lawful, and if you will suffer speech of strict truth, all the winding ways of falsity forbidden, I come not down here because of curiosity to see the glooms of Tartarus, and have no thought to bind or strangle the free necks of the Medusan monster, vile with snakes. But I have come, because my darling wife stepped on a viper that sent through her veins death poison, cutting off her coming years. If able, I would bear it. I do not deny my effort. But the god of love has conquered me, a god so kindly known in all the upper world, we are not sure he can be known so well in this deep world, but have good reason to conjecture he is not unknown here, and if old report almost forgotten, that you stole your wife is not a fiction, love united you the same as others. By this place of fear, this huge void in these vast and silent realms, renew the life-threat of Eurydice. All things are due to you. And though on earth it happens we may tarry a short while, slowly or swiftly we must go to one abode, and it will be our final home. Long and tenaciously you will possess unquestioned mastery of the human race. She also shall be yours to rule, when full of age she shall have lived the days of her allotted years. So I ask of you possession of a few days as a boon, but if the fates deny to me this prayer for my true wife, my constant mind must hold me always so that I cannot return. 
dew may triumph in the death of two. While he sang all his heart said to the sound of his sweet lyre, the bloodless ghosts in themselves were weeping, and the anxious Tantalus stopped, clutching at the return flow of the wave. Ixion's twisting wheels did wander bound, and Titius' liver for a while escaped the vultures, and the listening melodies forgot their sieve-like bowls, and even you, O Sisyphus, sit idly on your rock. Then fame declared that conquered by the song of Orpheus, for the first and only time the hard cheeks of the fierce Eumenides were wet with tears. Nor could the royal queen, nor he who rules the lower world, deny the prayer of Orpheus. So they called to them Eurydice, who still was held among the new arriving shades, and she obeyed the call by walking to them with slow steps, yet halting from her wound. So Orpheus then received his wife, and Pluto told him he might now ascend from these Avernian vales up to the light with his Eurydice. But if he turned his eyes to look at her, the gift of her delivery would be lost. They picked their way in silence up a steep and gloomy path of darkness. There remained but lesser more to climb till they would touch earth's surface, when in fear he might again lose her, and anxious for another look at her, he turned his eyes so he could gaze upon her. Instantly she slipped away. He stretched down to her his despairing arms, eager to rescue her, or feel her form, but could hold nothing save the yielding air. Dying the second time, she could not say a word of censure of her husband's fault. What had she to complain of? his great love. Her last word spoken was, Farewell, which he could barely hear, and with no further sound she fell from him again to Hades. Struck quite senseless by this double death of his dear wife, he was as fixed for motion as a frightened one who saw the triple necks of Cerberus, that dog whose middle neck was chained, the sight filled him with terror he had no escape from, until petrified to stone, or like Galenus, changed to stone, because he fastened on himself the guilt of his wife. Oh, unfortunate Lithia, too boastful of your beauty, you and he, united ones in love, are now two stones upon the mountain Ida, moist with springs. Orpheus implored in vain the ferryman to help him cross the river Styx again, but was denied the very hope of death. Seven days he sat upon death's river-bank, in squalid misery and without all food, nourished by grief, anxiety, and tears, complaining that the gods of Erebus were pitiless. At last he wandered back, until he came to lofty Rhodope and Hamus, beaten by the strong north wind. Three times the sun completed his full course to watery Pisces, and in all that time, shunning all women, Orpheus still believed his love pledge was forever. So he kept away from women, though so many grieved, because he took no notice of their love. The only friendship he enjoyed was given to the young men of Tracy. There was a hill which rose up to a level plateau, high and beautiful with green grass, 
and there was not any shade for comfort on the top, and there, on that luxuriant grass, the bard, while heaven-inspired reclined, and struck such harmonies on his sweet life that shade most grateful to the hill was spread around. Strong trees came up there, the canyon oak, the Heliot's poplar, and the lofty branch deep mast tree, the soft linden and the beech, the brittle hazel and the virgin laurel tree, the ash for strong spears, the smooth silver fir, the flex bent with acorns and the plain, the various tinted maple, and with those, the lotus and green willows from their streams, evergreen box and slender tamarisks, rich myrtles of two colours, and the thyme bending with green-blue berries. And you, too, the pliant-footed ivy, came along with tendril branching grape-vines, and the elm all covered with twist-vines, the mountain-ash, pitch-trees and arbutus-trees of blushing fruit, the bending palm prized after victories, the bare-trunk pine of tufted foliage bristled upon the top, a pleasant sight delightful to the mother of the gods, since Attis dear to Cybele, exchanged his human form which hardened him that tree. In all the throng the cone-shaped cypress came, a tree now, it was changed from a dear youth loved by the god who strings the lyre and bow, for there was at one time a mighty stag held sacred by those nymphs who haunt the fields Carthian. His great antlers spread so wide they gave an ample shade to his own head. Those antlers shone with gold. From his smooth throat a necklace studded with a wealth of gems hung down to his strong shoulders. Beautiful. A silver boss, fastened with little thongs, played on his forehead, worn there from his birth and pendants from both ears of gleaming pearls adorned his hollow temples. Free of fear, and now no longer shy, frequenting homes of men he knew, he offered his soft neck even to strangers for their patting hands. But more than by all others he was loved by you, O Ciparises, fairest youth of all the lads of Seir. It was you who led the pet stag to fresh pasturage, and to the waters of the clearest spring. Sometimes he wove bright garlands for his horns, and sometimes, like a horseman on his back, now here, now there, you guided his soft mouth with purple reins. It was upon a summer day, at high noon, when the crab of spreading claws, loving the seashore, almost burned beneath the sun's hot burning rays, and the pet stag was then reclining on the grassy earth, and, wearied of all action, found relief under the cool shade of the forest trees, that, as he lay there, Ciparisus pierced him with a javelin. And although it was quite accidental, when the shocked youth saw his loved stag dying from the cruel wound, he could not bear it, and resolved on death. What did not Phoebus say to comfort him? He cautioned him to hold his grief in check, consistent with the cause. But still the lad lamented, and with groans implored the gods that he might mourn for ever. His life was exhausted by long weeping. Now his limbs began to take a green tint, and his hair, which overhung his snow-white brow, turned up into a bristling crest, and he became a stiff tree with a slender top, and pointed up to the starry heavens 
and the guard groaning with sorrow said, "'You shall be mourned sincerely by me, surely as you mourn for others, and forever you shall stand in grief where others grieve.' Such was a grove by Orpheus drawn together, and he sat surrounded by assembled animals and many strange birds. When he tried the chords by touching with his thumb, and was convinced that the notes were all in harmony, although attuned to various melody, he raised his voice and sang, O oh, my loved mother, muse, from Jove inspire my song, for all things yield to the unequalled sway of Jove. Oh, I have sung so often Jupiter's great power before this day, and in wilder strain I've sung the giants and victorious bolts hurled on Phlegraean plains. But now I need the gentler touch, for I would sing of boys, the favourites of gods, and even of maids who had to pay the penalty of wrong. The king of all the gods once burned with love for Ganymede of Phrygia. He found a shape more pleasing even than his own. Jove would not take the form of any bird except the eagles, able to sustain the weight of his own thunderbolts. Without delay, Jove on fictitious eagle wings stole and flew off with that loved Trojan boy, who even to this day, against the will of Juno, mingles nectar in the cups of his protector, mighty Jupiter. You also, Hyacinthus, would have been set in the sky, if Phoebus had been given time which the cruel fates denied for you. But in a way, you are immortal too, though you have died. Always when warm spring drives winter out, and Ares, the ram, succeeds to Pisces, watery fish, you rise and blossom on the green turf, and the love my father had for you was deeper than he felt for others. Delphi, centre of the world, had no presiding guardian, while the god frequented the Eurotars and the land of Sparta, never fortified with walls. His thither and his bow no longer fill his eager mind, and now, without a thought of dignity, he carried nets and held the dogs in liege, and did not hesitate to go with Hyacinthus on the rough, steep mountain ridges. And by all of such associations his love was increased. Now Titan was about midway, betwixt the coming and the banished night, and stood at equal distance from those two extremes. And then, when the youth and Phoebus were well stripped, and gleaming with rich olive oil, they tried a friendly contest with the discus. Fast Phoebus, well poised, Scented a world through air, and cleft the clouds beyond with his broad wade, from which at length it fell down to the earth, a certain evidence of strength and skill. Heedless of danger, Hyacinthus rushed for eager glory of the game, resolved to get the discus. But it bounded back from off the hard earth, and struck full against your face, O oh, Hyacinthus. Deadly pale the god's face went, as pallid as a boy's, with care he lifted the sad, huddled form. The kind God tries to warn you back to life, and next endeavours to attend your wound and stay your parting soul with healing herbs. His skill has no advantage, for the wound is past all art of cure. As if someone, when in a garden, 
breaks of violets, poppies, or lilies hung from golden stems, then drooping they must hang their wizard heads, and gaze down towards the earth beneath them. So the dying boy's face droops, and his bent neck, a burden to itself, falls back upon his shoulder. You are fallen in your prime, defrauded of your youth, O Hyacinthus, moaned Apollo. I can see in your sad wound my own guilt, and you are my cause of grief and self-reproach. My own hand gave you death unmerited. I only can be charged with your destruction. What have I done wrong? Can it be called a fool to play with you? Should loving you be called a fool? And oh, that I might now give up my life for you, or die with you. But since our destinies prevent us, you shall always be with me, and you shall dwell upon my care-filled lips. The lyre struck by my hand, and my true songs will always celebrate you. A new flower you shall arise, with markings on your petals, close imitation of my constant moans. And there shall come another to be linked with this new flower. A valiant hero shall be known by the same marks upon its petals. And while Phoebus Apollo sang these words with his truth-telling lips, behold the blood of Hyacinthus, which had poured out on the ground beside him, and there stained the grass, was changed from blood, and in its place a flower, more beautiful than Tyrian dye, sprang up. It almost seemed a lily, were it not that one was purple and the other white. But Phoebus was not satisfied with this, for it was he who worked the miracle of his sad words inscribed on flower leaves. And these letters, A.I., A.I., are inscribed on them. And Sparta certainly is proud to honour Hyacinthus as her son, and his loved fame and years, and every year they celebrate a solemn festival. If you should ask a martyrs, which is rich in metals, how can she rejoice and take a pride in deeds of her propriety?s She would disclaim it, and repudiate them all, as well as those of transformed men, whose foreheads were deformed by two rough horns, from which their name, Sarastai. By their gates an altar unto Jove stood, if by chance a stranger, not informed of their dark crimes, had seen the horrid altar smeared with blood, he would suppose that suckling calves and sheep of Amatus were sacrificed thereon. It was, in fact, the blood of slaughtered guests. Kind-hearted Venus, outraged by such deeds of sacrifice, was ready to desert her cities and her snake-infested plains. But how, said she, have their delightful lands, together with my well-built city, sinned? What crime have they done? Those inhabitants should pay the penalty of their own crimes by exile or by death, or it may be a middle course between exile and death. And what can that be but a punishment of a changed form? And while she hesitates, in various thoughts, of what form they should take, her eyes by chance observed their horns, and that decided her. Such horns could well be on them after any change occurred, and she transformed their big and brutal bodies to savage bulls. But even after that, the obscene propoitides, 
dare to deny divinity of Venus, for which fault, and it is common fame, they were the first to criminate their bodies through the wrath of Venus, and so blushing shame was lost, white blood and their bad faces grew so fast, so hard, it was no wonder they were turned with small change into hard and lifeless stones. End of Book 10, Part 1